3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, good morning. Oh, good morning. Uh, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> yeah, we're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855am. Uh, it is... Oh, it's, that's not the date that it says on the run sheet. It is Thursday, the 20th of April. My gosh, the time is flying and we're almost through the period of uh, a whole lot of public holidays at once. And then we go into the dark days of winter and very scarce public holidays. So enjoy next week while you can. <laughs> the long night. Yeah, exactly. How have you been, Leela? Um, I have been a little bit frantic, but I've been um, doing what my therapist told me and taking deep breaths in lieu of not having time to relax. <laughs> Very good. Very good, everybody. Let's all take a deep breath, ready for your lovely morning. I need to take a deep breath after what happened last night. My power was disconnected uh, because my company didn't Connects me to the right meter, so this is a that's service why you announcement. pay all that money. Yes. <laughs> exactly, uh, service announcement to check the meter on your <laughs> electricity bill. Um, should we go through a little rundown of what we are going to be talking about today? For sure. Uh, so we're going to start off with fingers crossed, uh, getting in touch with Wayne Coco Wharton. He's a Kuma man, a seasoned activist and convener at the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy to speak about the Treaty Before Voice campaign, which is a grassroots First Nations campaign led by a network of First Nations communities and the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy calling for an end to the war against First Nations people and questioning the current push for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. And then we'll be joined by Judith Peppard, fellow 3CR producer and presenter with a keen interest and history in the alcohol and other drug space. We recently attended uh, the, recent, the 2023 International Harm Reduction Conference in Nam from the 16th to the 19th of April. And the theme for this year's conference was Strength in Solidarity. And we'll have a chat about some of the key themes and insights that surround global harm reduction efforts. And after that, we're going to be joined by curator Mara Sisson to discuss the exhibition Sekala Niskala, The Seen and Unseen. Currently showing at Footscray Community Arts, this exhibition is a celebration of continuing art styles based on Balinese Hindu belief that pushes the boundaries of traditional Indonesian art. Sekala Niskala features artists Agus Saputra, Kunsia Satya Viku, Ni La Pangestu, Satya Sipta, and Septa Adi. Yeah, I'm really excited for that interview. And after that, we are joined by Ruth Jelly, who is the Victorian Assistant Secretary of the National Tertiary Education Union. Ruth has worked in a range of professional staff roles in learning design across three universities across 2012 and has been advocating for workers' rights with the NTEU as elected representative since 2018. 
and she joins us today to speak about the Deakin Branches Protected Industrial Action tomorrow, 21st of April, at the Burwood campus, and how the proposed agreement is really a dodgy deal. Awesome. And finally, we are joined by Alastair Sasson, who's a Macquarie University Research Fellow and organizer with the Sydney-based Action for Public Housing. And Al's going to speak with us about why the federal government needs to invest in public housing as one of the core solutions to Australia's housing crisis. And we'll be talking about the scale of the crisis, federal and state government action or lack thereof on housing, and why this tenure type is such a key consideration in coordinating a systemic response to housing unaffordability. So massive show coming up. Uh, stay tuned. You're on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.05 in the morning. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 20th of April, 2023. Uh, First up... Yesterday, justice organization Sisters Inside met with the Cairns Regional Council in response to Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk's children's prison plan. The plan includes the development of two additional youth detention centres, increased penalties such as harsher harsher punishment for those who discuss their offences on social media, and extended sentencing for car theft and offences committed at night. Sisters Inside have urged the Cairns Regional Council to reject the plan and instead encourage pro-social prevention measures that foster young people's sense of belonging within their community. Sisters Inside Chief Executive Debbie Kilroy says, quote, Prisons teach children they don't matter and that they are inherently bad. We need responsive care, and that means making sure children's needs are met, end quote and urges Cairns Council to lead the way in demanding support for programs and services that will invest in better lives for children. Also in the news headlines, a record-breaking heatwave has engulfed parts of Asia, with India, China, Laos and Thailand experiencing temperatures above 40 degrees Celsius, which are set to continue to rise throughout the week. India has been particularly hard hit, recording 13 heat-related deaths so far and countrywide school closures. On Saturday, Bangladesh capital Dhaka recorded its hottest day in 58 years of 40.3 degrees. These extreme conditions highlight an ongoing concern that the global regions who suffer most as a result of climate change are also the smallest contributors to its progression while richer countries with resources to safeguard against the effects remain disproportionate contributors. In other news, the Labor government has dismissed chances of a job seeker payment rise after a report released on Tuesday by Labor's own Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee found that the payment has fallen far below a livable level. The committee report confirms that, quote, people on these payments face the highest levels of financial stress in Australia. The unemployment base rate currently sits at $693.10 per fortnight for single people. Recommendations to increase job seeker to 90% of the pension rate, an additional $181.25 per fortnight, has been rejected. The report concludes that job seeker and youth allowance payments measure on, unquote, all indicators seriously inadequate 
relative to the national minimum wage in comparison with pensions or against a range of incomes, poverty measures. And finally, in news headlines, and listeners, please be advised that the following headline contains the name of a First Nations person who has died. An inquest into the 2021 drowning of Gordon Copeland has found that New South Wales police failed to treat grieving family members with respect or care in the aftermath of Copeland's death. Copeland was followed by police after they mistakenly identified his car as stolen, and he drowned after entering the Gwydir River in an attempt to run from officers. Police terminated searches for Copeland after just three days, and yet his body was not recovered until three months later. His family report being given a post-it note by police recommending where to search the river in lieu of the formal search's continuation. Since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody conducted in 1991, there have been more than 500 police-related deaths of Aboriginal people in custody. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 20th of April. And just before we wrap that, um, coming back to that uh, dismissal of the job seeker payment raise, uh, just want to let folks know that the Australian Unemployed Workers Union is organizing various actions around the country. So you can uh, check out their social media. That's the Australian Unemployed Workers Union or AUWU to find out if there's an action near you, uh, there's any organizing relevant to you that you want to get involved in uh, to support a continued push for a raise in the job seeker rate to, you know, lift people out of the dire circumstances of poverty that they're living in under this cost of living crisis prior to the May budget. So those have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 20th of April again, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. From Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter.
Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together. Worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kindergarten. In a kinder program, children learn through play, art, music and dance. Qualified teachers create culturally safe places for Aboriginal children and families. Koori kids shine at kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash koori dash kids dash shine. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're now joined by Wayne Coco Wharton, who's a Kuma man, seasoned activist and convener at the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy to talk about the Treaty Before Voice campaign. Wayne, good morning and thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, good morning. And how, how are you? And um, um, I respect to the TAs, the traditional owners and the mob down in Melbourne. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it seems like a lot of the the organizing that you're doing up at the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy um, around the Treaty Before Voice campaign, you know, really resonates with a lot of the conversations that are happening down here and especially, you know, through Uncle Robbie Thorpe at 3CR. So um, really appreciate you making the time. Yeah, well, we're uh, we're running it through the... We're trying to coordinate the national approach through the embassies around the country. Mm-hmm. And um, it's Perth and uh, you know, right around. So it's, it's it's good that it's fortunate that we're at this state at time that we were able to um, coordinate the um, coordinate it through Brisbane. As you can appreciate, we, we've got very little resources. We've got very little resources mm-hmm. to be able to do anything. And um, yeah, it's um, it's a bit difficult. Yeah, no, of course. And, um, the challenge is quite challenging. So it's, um, it's, um, those, um, yeah, it's quite challenging. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, as I'm sure we'll get into, there's obviously, um, been a lot of, you know, media push and, um, backing for the, the yes campaign that has, you know, sort of sidelined, um, the perspectives of, of folks like the Treaty Before Voice campaign that are really pushing, you know, this hardline grassroots, um, sovereign angle. So, uh, 
I was hoping that we could maybe just hear a little bit first about your own journey into sovereign activism to provide a little bit of context and like your approach to political activism from a place of sovereignty. I guess um, building on that, I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell me a bit about your perspectives on the sort of um, the the push for constitutional recognition, that mainstream campaign. You know, what what do you think of it? And um, yeah, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, what we, we, this is the biggest act of fraud that was this this um, this process um, of um, the the. the so-called constitutional change has been caused by um, has been caused by well, it's, it's, it's a direct. This has been fabricated. It's been it's a direct result of what's happened. And ever since the colony got here, ever since they've been here, they've maintained their efforts to try and get us in a position where um, they, they're we come under their constitution. Mm. Now, if you look at this stuff, it started back in 1985 with um, the Whitlam government and the, the, an organisation called NAC, which is the National Aboriginal Conference, and um, people like Michael Anderson were a part of it. And then it went into um, the 1985 stuff with um, people like... Um, Malcolm Fraser, mm-hmm. who um, undertook um, 
certain um, men like um, Nugget Coombs and Garth Nettheim and people like that to try and run the, the campaign. Mm-hmm. And then we had um, the, the Hawke attempt in 1988 to, to galvanise the and then he was stabbed in the back by Coombs. And then Keating took it through to 1992, whereas in between we had a bloke called Marbo that went through to the High Court and through the High Court was able to get our, um, to um, be able to decide our, our position and our, our rights on, um, on, um, on within that, the, the High Court. Mm-hmm. So, um, through all that, uh, what we've had now since 92, and at the appointment of, and since 2017, there's been Malcolm Turnbull's group that have been working in, on their constitutional um, uh, entrapment. And um, basically, what has been since 95 is a man, an orchestrated attempt to manufacture consent from First Nations people into the constitution. And that's the reality. This, this voice, everything that's happened in this initiative is not a First Nations initiative. It, it, it's, it's all been designed by whatever political power that was in, in, in that time. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate you providing that sort of timeline because it shows that, you know, this isn't a new push. This has been, you know, around and, as you said, been been cultivated over a long period of time. And, you know, now it's getting a whole lot of attention because it's coming to a referendum this year. And yet, you know, I know that yourselves and a whole lot of other, you know, really staunch activists, including um, Senator Lydia Thorpe and, and many other folks down here, um, question you know what this is actually going to uh first of all uh do in terms of impacting on first nations people's sovereignty but secondly what it's going to do in terms of even making any kind of tangible change so um can you tell us a bit about the treaty before voice campaign and what you're calling for the originally spoke to albanese we wanted him to include a treaty as an additional question to the referendum and um, we asked him to consider that. And then he, we couldn't even get a meeting with the working group. We couldn't get anybody to listen to us whatsoever. So we've gone from asking for the constitutional change to asking for a um, constitutional change to asking for a flat-out people to vote no. Because if it's, it, 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 the... Yes, campaign. If the if the if you look at the the question that's being chosen by Albanese to take to the referendum, that's being circused around the country at the moment. What you see is the first two things that are dropped from the question are the words treaty and the words campaign. And what it limits the the question limits the peripheries of discussion. So when people vote at the at the uh, referendum, they will be voting on the exact wording what is there, and that's why lawyers and barristers and everyone have a full day with this stuff. And so what we're saying is that it'll go to a, um, that question, and if the else vote gets in, when it comes time to talk about a treaty 
or truth telling that Sarah wasn't in the, the peripheries of the, the referendum. Mm. The referendum said we're allowed to talk about A, B, and C, not D, F, and G. And um, that, that, that's the, I think it's um, entrapment. And it, it's, it's really part of the ignorance and really insulting the 18 to 16 million people that vote. What they've done is they've used the, designed it so that the, there's going to be 18 million people that go to the polls, 18 million people that cast their vote, and they do it on blind ignorance, thinking that they're doing what the nation's people want. And I've spoken and represented and had workshops in Sydney and Melbourne and um, Brisbane and Queensland. And I've got further workshops in Alice Springs, Darwin, South Australia, Hobart coming up in the next month. And everyone, all, all the black fellas are saying that they, they, they don't have a clue about it. They don't want to know about it. They don't want it because it infringes on the rights right now. The government departments and corporations and companies have to deal with Aboriginal people at that level, at, at, at their nationhood level. And that's the first time in their lives that they, they've had their rights organised and that they can have that bargaining and, and that negotiating tool. Once this, this voice goes in, it dis, dispossesses those people and um, confines them and it takes that, that right away from them. That, was, that wasn't given to us by the voice. That was won by Marbo in the High Court. Mm -hmm. And the High Court recognises that. And the only way they can change the High Court decision is to work out a back deal using 16 million voters to change the constitution. Yeah, I mean, it really, I think like this really puts into perspective what is at stake uh, in, in these conversations, which really doesn't come through mainstream media coverage of The Voice. So I really appreciate you taking us through that. And we'll share more information about the Treaty Before Voice campaign on our social media um, and uh, with our show notes. But, Wayne, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us this morning. I look always, but um, what we're saying is that to many listeners, look, you can't be lazy in this exercise. You've got to decide which one's going to tell them which one's not. And, and you've really got to not waste your vote because it's actually throwing people. 16 million people are going to decide the fate of 800,000 black fellas. Mm -hmm. And it means throwing, if they, and if they vote yes to this, they're going to throw us under the bus. Yeah. Well, and yeah. people have got to understand what, what, what we've always wanted. We want to feel, many of our First Nations people, when we're born in the occupation, we've known nothing else but legislation that governs our lives, telling us what we can't do in our own country. Mm -hmm. If there's 16 million people who want to do something great in this century, in this time, do something globally great and liberate First Nations people in this country. Yeah. And that's through a treaty, no other way. Absolutely. Thank you so much, and I think you've put it perfectly there. And we'll, again, have that information about how you can support the Treaty Before Voice campaign in our show notes. Thank you, Wayne.
And that was Wayne Coco Wharton, Kuma man, seasoned activist and convener at the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy, who joined us to speak about the Treaty Before Voice campaign, which is a grassroots First Nation campaign led by a network of First Nations communities and the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy, calling for an end to the war against First Nations people and questioning the current push for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. I've had a few jobs over the years. None I've really loved. A mate suggested I use my skills to teach. Turns out I only needed to study for under two years. Now, I'm in demand, in a secure career I love. Come on, kids, gather around. Are you ready? Fast track your study and start teaching sooner with an accelerated learning program. Visit vic.gov.au forward slash teach the future. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And now... Uh, we'll be joined by Judith Peppard, who is a fellow 3CR producer and presenter with a keen history and interest in the alcohol and other drug space, 
who recently attended the 2023 International Harm Reduction Conference here in Melbourne from 16th to the 19th of April. So the theme for this year's conference was Strength and Solidarity, and we're just going to have a chat about some of the key themes and insights that surround global harm reduction efforts. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Judith. It's just a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. No, of course. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think I just want to firstly chat about the theme, um, the strength in solidarity, which I know definitely was in the air. And I, I was also at the Monday's plenary session called, called like Challenging Systems of Oppression. And what really stuck out to me was there's like Kirsten Hahn, who's, spoke, who's speaking about abolishing Singapore's death penalty for drug offences, and Gina Jackson, who's speaking about grant-making and empowering Indigenous uh, women-led initiatives. And the whole plenary um, just really spoke about how to build movements in solidarity for power, not only justice. And I'm wondering, you know, what your understanding has been about solidarity and harm reduction, you know, after attending the conference. Well, I think it was just so evident at the conference. It was everywhere, solidarity. And and it, it was people who care absolutely deeply about the work they do, the people they work with, the advocacy they do. And so people were, and I think you, you mentioned something about running from one workshop to another to see how much you could fit in on that day. And there was that sense of people wanting to hear from each other, you know, what are you doing in this situation? Uh, we're in a really repressive situation. What can we do about providing a needle exchange, for example, or a safe injecting room? Or you know, So people are finding out, learning from each other. The care is amazing. They're passionate about reducing harm caused by the punitive policies, drug policies that we have, both here in Victoria, but worse in other countries. I mean, Victoria is doing some good things, too. I need to say that. But there's still so much more that could be done. So, yeah, warmth, care, learning, being challenged. Like, people wanted to get new ideas, to think differently, look what else, you know, might might be possible. And uh, and they're also keen to hear research as well. But uh, was that your sense when you were there? No, absolutely it was. I think I was actually quite surprised because um, I... I'm not sure what exactly I expected. I thought it would be definitely more um, like this is what we're doing in drug policy. These are our stats and this is like some of our efforts. <laughs> um, you thought it, it would be, might be boring. <laughs> yeah, literally. I, I was so surprised that so much of the global movement, like Singapore, Philippines, here in Australia, like all across the world, um, they were talking about abolishing... Sorry to interrupt. I went to a session from Myanmar yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Providing services in that context. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, 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 not at all. I think, um, what were you saying about Myanmar? Oh, well, they were providing um, antiviral or antiretroviral treatment to people with HIV. And, of course, they've had a coup and they've had a terrible impact of COVID. They don't have lots of cash, and they had to get out into the community and find ways to go out into the community. And what they were saying is by having to work in a new way, we were learning more. You know, so no matter where people are in the world, I mean, there are 80 different countries there. You know, people who do this work are so passionate and caring about it. That's my That was my feeling, and I think that's what you found. Yes, I definitely did. I think more and more people are definitely seeing... Um, 
or maybe it was the bubble, but I definitely think it is a sentiment that is, you know, coming out into broader culture as well. And definitely here at 3CI is like people that use drugs deserve rights and dignity and self-determination. Um, and it is a health issue and not a criminal issue. And I think, yeah, what I was most surprised about is that globally – Everybody is talking about how do we abolish these really carceral health practices and legislation to support these, you know, support the rights. Yes, how, how do we get rid of, you know, putting people in jail just for even possessing drugs? And and I guess the thing that came out is the drug is the whole thing of um, prohibition and punitive drug policy is supposed to stop drug use. That's that's kind of a very naive, naive idea behind it. And it's been an absolute failure, and it's become an instrument of oppression, probably was from the very beginning, actually. So, yeah, it's time to move out of that thinking. But there's been just – we just haven't had enough of the other kind of other ideas and enough challenging of those ideas, I think, to to shift policy. So, yeah. Yeah, I think what was – What's so pertinent throughout so many of the conversations, even from like the one Monday that I attended, um, is that the underground, like real harm reduction was coming from people like sex workers and you know, like yep. queer and trans workers and like indigenous people. And I feel like sometimes in the conversation of harm reduction, um, I think some of these voices sometimes can get lost. Um, but yeah. I think the, you know, the, people that do really solid, ongoing community work and really are putting a lot of their life on the line um, across the world uh, are sometimes the people that are the most affected by alcohol and drug policy. I'm wondering if you have you know, any thoughts on that. Well, well, I'm glad you mentioned sex workers because in Sydney, before the first supervised injecting room, medically supervised injecting room in King's Cross, it was a group of sex workers who were providing that service. So they were ahead of the game already to prevent people from having overdoses. So, you know, uh, and, uh, you, you know, people who use drugs also are people that are providing services, providing information. And we can go again back to the 80s in the campaign against HIV when, uh, when people didn't even know what caused it, you know, in, the, in those days. And it was, you know, and they identified people who would be at risk. And one group, of course, was injecting people who injected drugs. And so policy people were smart enough to sit down with people who injected drugs and say, what do you need? And I'm sure that that was the beginning of a clean needle program and the needle exchange program way back then saved so many lives. So having the voices of people on the ground and people who are experiencing um you know, the, the, um, drug use. I mean, lots of people use drugs just because they enjoy it and they're not, you, and, be, and because the drug is illegal, they suddenly become criminals. Whereas we all go down to the pub or whatever, or some of us do maybe, <laughs> you know, and, uh, or smoke some tobacco. And if you look at drug related deaths in Australia, 24,000 are tobacco. Less than 2,000 are due to illegal drugs. So, you know, I mean, we've got to get lots of stories out there, but I think I've just distracted you from the, from the conference. Please. No, not at all. I think it's um, like everything you're saying like really is resonating with me. And it's, it's funny that you bring up um, smoking because I think one thing that I was also really thinking about is, you know, like tobacco is also a, a drug as well. Um, yes. And... 
if you <laughs> if you're having a cigarette and then later on in your life you you know um, like get lung cancer, you are still treated with the dignity and the care yes. to get that treatment. Yes. But you know, God forbid, you are an injecting drug user um, and you have health complications, and then you're treated with um, like like stigma. And and we also have to remember that similar to stigma in different levels, there's also almost a hierarchy that shouldn't be there about who deserves protection out of drug, like people who use drugs. So, you know, sometimes with alcohol and with nicotine yep. and with weed, um, it is, you know, we can kind of get a little bit of a pass by. But once we get into places where we feel uncomfortable or where we don't, we, I don't know, see it as like some sort of moral correct behavior um even in the realm of drug use it doesn't seem to i I guess pertinate through that so i'm wondering i guess with like your conversations at the conference and your talks what are what kind of key takeaways do you have about like stigma and how language particularly is used um to support people that use drugs yeah well i mean one example is that you know people who use drugs as opposed to drug users the one you've just said. So people, that's the first thing. We're talking about people. And that came up, we're talking about human beings, and that came up in the presentation you would have heard about the death penalty. These people on death row in Singapore, because of drugs, they are human beings. And they deserve, you know, they deserve better, and they don't deserve to die, and some of them are very young. That was an incredibly moving presentation that we heard from Singapore. Yes, it was. And um, I think with, like, Singapore especially, I feel like it's they have the Transformative Justice Collective there. And yes. they... Yeah, and that was Kirsten Han, let's name her, because she was so amazing. A hundred percent. Yeah, she was a real, like, standout for me personally. Yeah. Um, just knowing that you, like, they are doing, like similar things that we're doing here you know like we're door knocking yeah. <laughs> um and yeah. trying to get uh people to change their minds and yeah I, the, people are being put on putting their lives on the line and even while like they were talking through their topics they were saying like right now as we speak or tomorrow someone is getting interviewed um by the police for this reason for this drug offense and i think it was really important to ground us in that, that it is not just a conference of multiple speakers that we get to see, like these are real people's lives and that, you know, once their talks are finished, they, the work still continues. Um, yes. And I yeah. think, oh, you, you go, sorry. Okay, no, I had a chat also with uh, Kirsten after the talk and uh, one of the things she go, you know, I think she said in the presentation there's one park that they can demonstrate in, in Singapore, only one. Mm. And uh, and um, so I got very excited because I'm excited. I get excited. <laughs> I'm an excitable person. I said, "Oh, maybe I can go visit." When I go, no, no. If you come in and we're demonstrating, you'll be in trouble. So you know, it's incredibly strict. But they are allowed. They are allowed to do the demonstrations in that space. But people like have to be very careful if they want to come in and offer support. They really can't. Anyway, that's. Again, uh, it just shows how difficult it is, and yet the courage 
to just stand up and do that. And she has written a very good article, actually, about the conference, about the first couple of days. So I might later on send you that. Yes, please do. I would absolutely adore that. Um, I think, you know, just because we are running out of time, sadly, I could talk, I could talk about this with you for hours and hours. Um, and I have to also say, Judith, that, um, our run-in was the sweetest moment of the whole conference. I was like, Judith's here. We're going to have a good time. We're going to talk drug policy. Uh, honestly, it was so lovely. I, I had to send you a selfie so you knew what I looked like, right? Yes, you did. I, I appreciated the selfie. Judith was like, I am here. It's <laughs> going be the cutest selfie I've ever seen. Um, yeah, but look, and I know you're running out of time, but you did mention the, that, you know, Narita Waite, the CEO of um, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, spoke yesterday at the plenary uh, at the beginning of the day, and she was absolutely brilliant. And she really brought home, as did other speakers at that conference, that with regard to First Nations peoples who have suffered so much from, you know, the colonialization and also from, you know, drugs, excuse me, that we need to work together to walk together. And if we're talking about decolonization, we need to to move together, and, and it was a fantastic set of presentations. So I really, I just want to mention that. No, of course. Thank you for you bringing our attention to that, and um, you know, hopefully at at some point maybe we can talk about it a little bit more. But unfortunately to, for today, that's kind of all we have time for. But thank you so much for taking the time to, you know, come on the show and chat all things like AOD and you know harm reduction. Really appreciate yes. it. Yes. Yeah, thank you so much, and it's wonderful and the team. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijoma Umbinyo Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30 p.m. on 3CR Community Radio. Tune in to Rainbows Don't Fade With Age on Radio 3CR fortnightly on Mondays at 2 p.m. Rainbows Don't Fade With Age, Melbourne's only show dedicated to all things LGBTI, ageing and aged care. With stories and information to empower and inspire action for all those interested in the health, well-being and visibility of older LGBTI people. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accented women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? 
drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. just previously heard from Judith Peppard about the International Harm Reduction Conference and just spoke about some of the key themes, uh, such as strength in solidarity. And now we are going to go to an interview with Mara Sisson, who is the curator for the exhibition Sekala Niskala, The Seen and Unseen, currently showing at Footscray Community Arts. This exhibition is a celebration of continuing style art styles based on Balinese Hindu belief that pushes the boundaries of traditional Indonesian art practice and features artists Agus Saputra, Konsia Satya Viku, Ni La Pangastu, Satya Septa and Septa Adi, and apologies if I am getting some of those pronunciations wrong. Good morning, Mara. Can you hear me? Yes, good morning. Amazing. Welcome to the show. Um, so we'll get right into it. I yeah. was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself as a curator and how this project got started, just to contextualize um, Sekala Niskala. Yes, of course. I work with Project 11. They're a foundation that supports um, emerging um, artists, uh, mainly from Indonesia, but also in Australia. And I've been curating with them since 2016. And um, so this project started like a lot of projects for 2023 over the pandemic. We wanted to um, we wanted to establish something that would support Indonesian artists in. Indonesia, particularly in, in Bali, we find that a lot of Balinese artists are not particularly recognized as, you know, contemporary artists in Indonesia. You know, you think about the cities of Jakarta, um, Yog Jakarta, mm. and Dung when you think about contemporary art. So we really wanted to put some focus on Balinese art this time around. Amazing. It's great to see Balinese artists visiting us here. Um, I did notice they were all flown over for the uh, show, which is amazing. Um, uh, and on that note, I wanted to ask if the concept for this exhibition was developed in collaboration with these Balinese artists, or was it something that you kind of developed independently and then reached out afterwards? We actually developed concept with my curator, um, me. Um, he's a Balinese curator based in Bali, so he um, pr- proposed this exhibition to us and um, ex- introduced us to these um, wonderful artists. Well, well, it's great to see, yeah, our neighbours getting involved. I'm also from the archipelago, so I always <laughs> like to see yeah, yeah. neighbours coming over and see a bit more art from that region. Um, Absolutely. Next up, I thought the title was really interesting of this mm-hmm. exhibition. So, mm-hmm. Sekala Niskala, I hope I'm saying that right, or yes. The Seen and the Unseen. Yes. Could you tell us more about the cultural meaning of this title and how it contextualises the work? 
So the scene, meaning the tangible, say, it could be an object like a chair or it could be a performance, like a, a dance performance. And the unseen would be, say, like the, the magic or the ritual behind the scene. And that, that concept is in, entwined into the Balinese culture. It's really ingrained to their everyday life. So, yeah, so the artist was able to apply that concept with, on, onto the the subject of their work or even the way they created their work. Yeah, yeah. I'm very keen to come and see some of the works. They look pretty amazing. There's some very complex, I guess, storytelling with a lot of figures in the previews that I have seen. So yeah. everyone get down there and have a look at these amazing stories that the five artists have um, yeah, brought to us. So next up, I wanted to ask about specifically the tradition of Balinese Hindu art. Um, yeah. What makes Balinese Hindu art unique and how have these five artists challenged traditions in their making? I think it's particularly unique. Um, coming from, since Indonesia is a Muslim um, majority country, and Bali in particular is unique because they're majority Hindu. Mm. Um, and the artists have challenged the traditions in a way that, you know, they've questioned a, a couple of concepts in like the, the Hindu, Hindu tradition. For example, um, one of the artists, Nilu Pangestu, she's... Um, reinterpreted the one of the stories in Ramayana uh, into into her lino cut uh, and one of our, our another artist um, his name is Kunchi Viku Satya he's used um, the style of um, Rara Jahan which is actually the art of sacred drawing into his contemporary work so it, it's an incredible visual to see and very unique in a way that I've I've never I've never actually seen before. Yeah, amazing. I think Hindu art across the world really packs a punch. It's one of my favorite um, styles of art forms to take inspiration from myself, yeah. and it's really complex and amazing. So yeah, looking mm. forward to seeing those. And Thanks. as well yeah. as viewing the art, there are also some public programs accompanying Sekala mm-hmm. Niskala. What are they and what can participants expect when they join? Yeah, so we have um, a beginner line drawing and lino cut making on this Saturday, the 22nd. Unfortunately, it is um, it is full, but you can come to the exhibition and meet the artist in person. They will be there between 11 and 2.30 p.m. Amazing. And um, Footscray Arts, the gallery, will be open during that time. Yeah, so and if you'd like to meet them, that, yeah, that would be a great time. We will include all the information for that in our show notes today. Um, you might even catch some of the workshop happening if it's not in one of the closed-off rooms. Um, and finally, my last question is, have you had a favourite um, or transformative experience when developing the exhibition Sekala Niskala? I'm, I'm still in awe. I, this is probably one of, I'm sounding a bit biased, but it's actually one of my favorite exhibitions to curate. Uh, I just, just the, the visuals of all the works and meeting the artists in person is an incredible experience and just 
I think just meeting them in person and seeing them face to face, you know, after seeing their work just gives me a better understanding of them and of the culture and, yeah, and of the art. Mara, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it also sounds like Project 11 is an amazing organization and we'll include some information about that in our show notes. I hope you have a great morning. Thank you, Leela. Thank you for having me. Bye. We just heard curator Mara Sisson speak about the exhibition Sekala Niskala, or The Seen and Unseen, currently showing at Footscray Community Arts and featuring five artists, Agus Saputra, Kuntir Satyaviku, Nila Pangestu, Satya Chipta and Septa Adi. You're listening to 3CR. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope... Only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. I've had a few jobs over the years. None I've really loved. A mate suggested I use my skills to teach. Turns out I only needed to study for under two years. Now... I'm in demand, in a secure career I love. Come on, kids, gather round. Are you ready? Fast track your study and start teaching sooner with an accelerated learning program. Visit vic.gov.au forward slash teach the future. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Hello, hello. And now we are joined by Ruth Jelly, who is the Victorian Assistant Secretary of the National Tertiary Education Union and has worked in a range of professional staff roles in learning design across three universities uh, since 2012 and has been advocating for workers' rights with the union as an elected representative since 2018. And she joins us today to speak about Deakin Universities, uh, Deakin NTU branches protected industrial action tomorrow. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Ruth. Thanks very much, Ines, and um, good morning to all your listeners. Well, thank you. Um, I was wondering maybe we could start off with what's going on at Deakin University and why the industrial action is actually taking place tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been in bargaining for a new staff agreement at Deakin University uh, for the last seven months. 
um, and this is following the expiration of their previous agreement back in 2020. So there's been a really uh, long time since staff have had uh, a new agreement, um, including a real pay rise and improved working conditions on the table for them. So the reason we're taking industrial action is because last week Deakin announced that they would walk away from the negotiating table with the union um, and put their draft directly to the staff. Now, this is a move that we are deeply disappointed in the union about, um, and it follows our application just prior to Easter um, when we won, we won the right to take this industrial action because what we're finding is that the negotiation process is taking a very long time. It's going very, very slow at Deakin, and there's been no progress. In the seven months since we started negotiations, there's been no progress on our claims for a real pay rise, there's been no relief from unsafe workloads and no improvements offered on job security. So um, for this reason, we're taking industrial action tomorrow morning uh, to send a message to management uh, at Deakin University uh, that we want them to return to the negotiating table uh, and uh, to keep discussing with us what their plans are for improving staff conditions. Yeah, I think that's it's so commendable and hugely important and such a um, almost a paradox to what the Vice-Chancellor has said it is submission to the federal government, um, that, you know, the higher use of casual employment is really indefensible. Um, but it seems like the proposed agreement really does nothing to reduce the casual workforce down from like 41.5% of Deakin's workforce. And it seems like it's such a trend from non-union enterprise agreements that there's such a huge undercut of wages and casualization and excessive workloads and general like justification for unsafe working conditions why do you think this like keeps happening and how do you think this benefits the uni well look there are a lot of benefits to the university um to uh keep wages low uh to keep casualization rates high um and to not address safety of workloads um you know this really helps them to increase their bottom line um to be blunt about it uh, through worker exploitation. So workers are really bearing the brunt uh, of, you know, um, poor governance decisions in universities. And it means that the university can turn a blind eye to the massive underpayment um, of uh, particularly casual academic staff by telling them how many hours per trimester per student that they will be paid in order to provide feedback and, and marking um, of student assessments instead of paying them for every hour it takes to do that work Diligently. Now, we know that our um, academic staff actually really pride themselves on the interaction um, and the education they provide to their students. In fact, Deakin has um, a, you know, a world-leading um, research department focusing on student feedback um, and, and those sorts of development processes. And yet, still, university management insists that it only takes an hour per trimester per student um, or some similar low rate um, in order to provide that really high quality work. We know that's really insufficient. We know that casuals spend a lot more time doing that work um, than they get paid for. And we also know that professional staff work a lot of unpaid overtime because they really love their jobs. They really love working for Deakin. They really believe in Deakin's mission and the students that they are working with. But unfortunately, since the Deakin reimagined um, restructures that came in in the recent years, um, there's been a decrease in staff and huge gaps in the workforce. So staff are really feeling the pressure to pick up the slack there. 
Um, and so there's a lot of unpaid overtime and people are afraid to speak out um, and demand, you know, the extra um, hours that they're, they're owed perhaps in um, time off in lieu. Now, the reason um, behind these really poor practices is poor governance in universities. So, for example, the Fair Work Ombudsman has been investigating underpayments in the sector and been very um, critical of the sector for its poor administration and record-keeping um, in terms of casual pay. And we know that the Fair Work Ombudsman is actually going to be prosecuting um, universities coming forward um, for that. So they're on notice to improve their systems. And also universities are quite addicted to um, external consultants who have you know, very little understanding of the culture and the inner workings of universities. And yet these are the organisations that are engaged to, um, to consult and provide advice and to design massive restructures in our universities. And there aren't really a lot of benefits, so they just keep restructuring and restructuring and restructuring and very unfortunately, we find that our professional staff bear the brunt of those job losses when those restructures come through. So, you yeah. know, there's a lot of questions there around governance for, um, you know, university boards to consider. Yeah, definitely. I think there's there's so much in there um, about, yeah, about governance, about what we are prioritising, what systems we have in place. I I think what is interesting, especially with so much of the recent media coverage around like university casualization throughout all, all kinds of staff at the university. Um, a lot of the focus does remain on like wage theft. And I, I definitely think that is rightly so. I also want to talk about what impact does the ongoing systemic injustice have on individual staff day to day? Look, it's there. We're hearing some really sad stories from our um, deacon um, casual members um, and you know, casual members throughout the sector. Uh, that you know, they really they struggle to pay their bills. And when you consider the huge increase in cost of living at the moment, um, <clears throat> you know, staff who are unable to uh, ensure that they have income, um, you know, in the in the non-study period, so you know, between trimesters um, at Deakin or between semesters at other universities. Uh, they have to go and find second jobs. Um, so the reporting in the media recently uh, about some academics who, you know, work casually um, at universities, you know, during semester, but they also have supermarket jobs, you know, on, on the side that they maintain as well. So that, you know, they end up uh, working incredibly long hours in both jobs and it's a bit of a boom and bust cycle for them. So depending on how many, uh, you know, uh, work offers they get, you know, um, as each teaching period approaches, you know, most of them will just say yes. Every time the phone rings, yes, I'll do that. I'll do that teaching work for you that semester. Yes, I'll take that unit as well. Yes, I'll take this subject too. And they might find themselves working for several institutions and before they've had a chance really to, to work out how they're going to fit all this work in, they work out they're actually working 150%, you know, of a normal workload. Um, but they'll, okay, look, I'm just going to do it. It'll just be, you know, but it's 12 weeks or, or something similar to that. Um, and then after that, there's just nothing. They sit around and they wait and wait and wait uh, for the phone to ring, for emails to come through um, to confirm whether or not they have received, um, you know, any, any further teaching contracts. And in some institutions, their email gets cut off, you know, the day after semester ends. Um, so, you know, they really have to, you know, provide their own, you know, uh, communications infrastructure in order to wait for that confirmation. Yeah, I think that is genuinely 
it is hard to hear, but unfortunately it doesn't feel surprising, which is, I think, a hard thing to also sit with. Um, and I think so often with a lot of jobs that are maybe like particularly reared or have a certain level of prestige to them, um, or everyone says like, this is the job, um, it's just part of it. And I don't think it always always should be part of it. And just because you love something doesn't mean you shouldn't be adequately um, protected or adequately, you know, waged, um, waged for the ac- accurate work that you do. And having to, you know, clock in for a second shift or a third shift at another job is takes such a toll, um, I, I, I can imagine, on on university staff of all levels. Um, Absolutely, and sorry to to interrupt, but you know these these are we're talking about people here who have spent extraordinary amounts of time um, educating themselves. So most of these people either um, have a PhD or are on their way to achieving a PhD, uh, which is an extraordinary academic venture, um, and often you know is something that is done while uh, experiencing uh, poverty um, and relying on government assistance um, or you know, working at the supermarket as well. Um, and to uh, to come out of that and to go into this, you know, highly insecure, highly underpaid gig economy kind of workforce um, is is really soul destroying um, for uh, for academic workers. And it's really not the picture that the community has of what university work is about. So university work, you know, generally speaking, you know, the rest of when you look at the, you know, the um, what in other countries might be called, you know, tenured professors. Um, but where we have in Australia sort of ongoing um, academic positions, uh, they are reasonably well paid. You know, we'll, I'll be quite honest about that. If you get a secure job in the university sector, um, you know, you're uh, you're really on um, you know on your way to having a nice, um, decent working life. Uh, but that's like a golden elephant. You know, it's somewhere it's a unicorn off in the distance. Um, for most people. And as you say, the, the casualisation rate um, at DEEC, it's 41.5% of the workforce is casual. And there's another percentage that are working on fixed-term insecure contracts, which means there's an even lower percentage of the workforce than that that actually has those unicorn ongoing permanent jobs. Yeah, it's, it is definitely disappointing to hear that stat. Um, and yeah, at the end of the day, these are people that have worked really hard um, and, you know, definitely deserve to be protected. Um, and I think just for the last question, um, I know we could sit here and talk about this all day, but unfortunately we're running out of time. But how can we support um, the action? What is the action? Um, do you have anything you want to say for, you know, Deacon staff who are participating or just people that want to show up? Absolutely. So tomorrow morning we are going to be at the Deakin Burwood Campus Library, nine o'clock sharp. Um, please turn up, um, you know, with your with your comrades. So if you are a staff member at Deakin, please make sure that you are a paid up NTEU member. So if you uh, turn up and you want to participate in the industrial action tomorrow and you're not sure about your membership status, bring a pen with you. We'll have some membership forms and we'll get you signed up on the spot. Um, if there are any Deakin students listening today, please reach out in solidarity. If you're on class doing some studies, you're planning to head to the library, come in a little bit earlier than you would normally on a Friday, come in at 9 o'clock and stand side, side by side with our staff to show that you care about the working conditions that they um, uh, are, are operating in because staff working conditions are student learning conditions. Um, and for anybody else who is... Um, you know, uh, supporting any Deakin staff at the moment, 
you know, the, unfortunately, the cost of taking industrial action is a slight cut in pay. Um, and so if you've got somebody in uh, your life who is a deacon NTEU member who is taking industrial action, buy them a coffee. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show and hopefully see lots of support for you tomorrow. Terrific. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Bye. So we've just heard from Ruth Jelly, the Victorian Assistant Secretary of the NTEU, um, has worked in a range of professional staff roles in learning design across three universities and is now currently an elected representative talking about the industrial action tomorrow, um, the 21st of April at the Deakin Burwood campus. And you're listening to 3CR 855 AM and it is currently 8.14. Salam be hamegi. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done by Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by Law. 6 p.m. Tuesdays. On Thursday morning, breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM, for our final interview of today's show. And we are joined by Alistair Sisson, who's a Macquarie University Research Fellow and organizer with Sydney-based Action for Public Housing. And we're going to speak about why the federal government needs to invest in public housing as one of the core solutions to Australia's housing crisis. And disclosure, I am a housing justice researcher at RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, so I also have skin in the game, uh, but I'm really excited to be speaking with you this morning, Alistair. Um, so maybe we can jump in by talking a bit about uh, the, the state of play. Uh, you recently authored an excellent article for The Guardian on uh, the housing crisis and on the importance of public housing in particular as a tenure type, even though the uh, the majority of the, the push from governments has been towards increasing, I guess, uh, private rental stock uh, or private housing stock. So the private rental market really has a stranglehold on housing affordability in Australia and rents are rising by huge margins across the country. And despite this, you noted in your article that uh, incoming New South Wales Premier Chris Minns just ruled out a rent freeze or cap on rent increases and Queensland Labor has this week also passed legislation which only plans to limit the frequency of rent increases to once every 12 months, which is a very small step. Um, how do you assess the level of urgency or adequacy of state and territory responses to the housing crisis, given the ample evidence for how dire the situation has become? Yeah, I, I would say if there's no urgency at all, or at best minimal urgency to respond to the crisis in the private rental market, 
I mean, if there was some urgency, we'd at least do something like we saw during lockdown due to COVID-19 in 2020 and 2021, where we had moratoriums on evictions and bans, or at least caps on rent increases, um, plus temporary investment in crisis accommodation. Um, so, yeah, no real urgency. It's worth probably noting as well that housing, you know, it's particularly bad at the moment, but it's always been at a kind of crisis point for people mm-hmm. on the income. Um, private rental housing has basically never been affordable, um, and public housing waiting lists have been, you know, in the hundreds of thousands for, for probably the last 30 to 40 years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is, I mean, it, it has only become very acute recently, um, and received a lot of media attention recently. But as you, as you say, it's been around for a very long time and, uh, combined with the cost of living crisis in general, um, is, you know, squeezing more and more folks on low income into like impossible situations. Um, so it does appear that, you know, status quo policy approaches at the moment to mass housing insecurity are quite firmly fixed on market solutions. So, could you take us through some of the fallacies of the supply side argument for reducing housing costs and in particular the idea that housing is going to trickle down to those most in need with sufficient investment in private housing stock? What do you make of these arguments? Mm, yeah, I mean, you're right to use the term trickle down. This is basically trickle down economics for housing. Some people in housing policy and research will call it filtering. Um, so the, I guess the fallacy is that the housing market can provide decent and affordable housing for people on low or even moderate incomes. Um, so in the piece in The Guardian that you mentioned, I, I referred to modelling from Reserve Bank of Australia Economists that was published a few years ago that suggested that for every 1% growth in the housing stock, that's over and above the growth that we need for new households, housing costs would fall by 2.5%. So there are about 11 million homes in Australia. That means you'd need 110,000 new homes on top of the homes that you need to add for people who are leaving their family home or moving to Australia in order for rents to fall by 2.5%. So that's really quite a lot of growth for a fairly small drop in rents. So to put that in context, new rentals have gone up by 10% in the last year in Australia. In Sydney, it's more than 17%. In Melbourne, it's about a similar rate. So, and, you know, rents as I mentioned, for people on low incomes, would need a fall by about 40% for them to be affordable for, say, a full-time minimum wage mm-hmm. worker for a one-bedroom apartment. Yeah. It's... Um, so just... <laughs> sorry, no, no, go just ahead. To, to stress that even more, I mean, this is a pretty modest effect. Um, there's also, I guess, you know, that's even if you accept the, the basis of that model, but there's also the issue of whether private property developers actually want to build that many homes when they profit from high house prices, which are partly driven by scarcity. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether they even can, you know, feasibly, uh, given at the moment we have supply chain constraints, labour shortages, high borrowing costs. So, yeah, housing might trickle down a little bit at the top of the housing market, but it, it really doesn't reach people on low to moderate incomes um, because it, there's very little incentive for private property developers to, to build to that extent. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, doesn't even take into account, um, you know, incentives that people have to keep properties empty, um, you know, through like capital gains tax, negative gearing, all that sort of thing. Um, so 
clearly what you're what you're saying here, uh, emphasizing here, is that, that many people can't afford to wait for this sort of pipe dream, vaguely defined housing affordability um, planning that relies on the market. So against this, you've reiterated the necessity of sustained investment in public housing in your article. So in your view, why is the growth of public housing as a distinct tenure type so important for meeting the housing crisis head on? Yeah, it's, it's really simple. Public housing is necessary because it guarantees a level of affordability and a level of housing security for the people who live in it. So rents are set at a percentage of incomes, usually around 25% of incomes. And so that, you know, sometimes that's too much for people who, who live in public housing because their incomes are so low, but it is affordable for many people. Uh, and it provides longer and still sometimes not as much as it used to, but sometimes lifelong leases. So these are things that the market won't provide. Um, and even things like Commonwealth rent assistance, you know, subsidies from, from the Commonwealth government for renting in the private rental market don't provide those things either. So the benefits are really obvious and they flow into, you know, all aspects of someone's life, their health, their well-being. Um, so, you know, there are problems with public housing, you know, things like maintenance. There are a lot of punitive policies towards tenants, but a lot of these things can be solved by just more funding and more building and, and more acquisition of public housing. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's 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 about not just uh, building more public housing, but actually investing in the you know in in the the repair and maintenance um, and proper management of public housing properties so that people are you know in livable conditions. Um, and yeah, I was also hoping that you could um, tell us a bit uh, about the broader like current state of public housing wait lists across the country relative to the scale of need and um, and the level of stock, and then plans for federal and state government investment. Um, you know, with the government putting forward its big housing bill uh, plan uh, or housing legislative package. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that I mean, the waiting lists themselves are pretty massive. So if you tally them up around the country, there's more than 175,000 households on public housing waiting lists. And there's research from the Australian Housing Urban Research Institute estimates that currently there's another 40,000 households who need it but aren't on a waiting list. That's likely because the waiting times are so long, Mm. at least five years, almost everywhere around the country, often more than 10 years um, before someone can get allocated a home. Um, So people don't bother applying or, or renewing their application for that reason. And then that same research estimated that in 15 years' time, there would be another 547,000 households who need public housing. So to, I guess, set that against the, the level of investment that's coming in, the Commonwealth Government has the Australia Housing, the housing Australia Future Fund um, package uh, tabled in the Senate at the moment that's only aiming to build 20,000 social dwellings over the next five years. Um, and so it's historically been the Commonwealth government's responsibility. State governments are doing little bits and pieces here and there. Really, these add up only to a few thousand, um, except I think in the case of Victoria, but I think the Victorian has largely continued on redevelop- redeveloping existing public housing estates. So the, the net gain there as well is, is pretty modest. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it really... Um it really is just, I don't know, it, it's hard to, to put into words how dire the crisis is at the moment and the, and how great the need is for immediate and significant and sustained investment um, in the sort of, 
you know, measures that you're, you're advocating for, the, uh, the reinvestment in public housing and building more public housing. And, you know, as, as we've seen this week, uh, the federal government has, uh, failed to commit to raising the rate of, um, social security payments. And so it's, uh, it seems like, you know, there's, there's no alleviation on, um, on that side of the equation either. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrapped up? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a whole bunch of other things we could do, like, right now. So, you know, we could build public housing. That's obviously the number one thing that I'm pushing for. Or we could, you know, buy homes that already exist to add to the public housing stock. But I think things like rent caps, rent control more broadly are really Mm -hmm. important. Greater protections against evictions. So we're starting to see this with with the ending of no-grounds evictions around the country. But more broadly, giving tenants the right to withhold rent when repairs aren't being done. Um, and having enforceable minimum standards so that so that renters you know have the rights and the power to get those those repairs done, um, and then other things like taxing vacant homes, which you mentioned previously. You know, there's a big issue with vacancies, short-term rentals as well, mm-hmm. um, and improving squatters' rights so that you know people can actually um, explore these alternatives outside the, the private rental market. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, uh, at the end of the day, uh, criminalizing people that are experiencing the worst of the housing crisis is, I'm sure, going to be attractive for some of the uh, some of the hawks in government. But at the same time, we have to think about this from uh, a position of community justice and care um, and, uh, you know, improving renters' rights for everybody and making sure that we all have access to a safe place to live. So, Alistair, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And that was Alistair Sasan, Macquarie University Research Fellow and organizer with Sydney-based Action for Public Housing, who spoke with us about why the federal government needs to invest in public housing as one of the core solutions to Australia's housing crisis. And uh, Alistair wrote an excellent piece for The Guardian, arguing that plans to predominantly increase private housing supply are not sufficient to address multifaceted issues with housing affordability in Australia. And you'll be able to read that uh, via the links in our show notes. Maybe we'll do a very quick rundown of what we covered today. Um, so first up, we heard from Wayne Coco Wharton, who's a Kuma man, seasoned activist and convener at the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy about the Treaty Before Voice campaign, which is a grassroots campaign led by a network of First Nations communities and the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy. And we'll have information about how to support the campaign, including fundraising for some of the trips that they're trying to do around the country in our show notes. And then we chatted to Judith Peppard, who is a fellow 3CR producer and presenter, and we chatted about the Harm Reduction International Conference here in Nam, and focused on the strength in solidarity theme too. And then we spoke to curator Mara Sisson, who discussed the exhibition Sekala Niskala, or The Seen and Unseen, currently showing at Footscray Community Arts it is a celebration of continuing art styles based on Balinese Hindu belief that pushes the boundaries of traditional Indonesian art practice. And then we were joined by Luce Jelly, who is from the Victorian Tertiary Education Union, about Deakin's Branches Industrial Action tomorrow, the 21st of April, at the Burwood campus, about the proposed enterprise agreement, which really is a dodgy deal. 
And finally, as uh, you just heard, uh, we spoke with Alistair Sisson, Macquarie University Research Fellow and Organizer with Action for Public Housing, about the scale of the housing crisis, federal and state government inaction on housing, and why public housing as a tenure type is a key consideration in coordinating a systemic response to housing unaffordability. That's all we've got time for today on Thursday Morning Breakfast. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.